Brian McClanahan Show, episode 441. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all the social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. That's mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History. You get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You can support the show also by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support or click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get a book plate. You can make a donation. You can purchase one of my books. Just about anywhere books are sold. That also supports the show. Get your Brian McClanahan Show merchandise by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Go to Learn True T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Great website, educational website. Lots of great ways to support the show. Of course, purchasing a class at McClanahan Academy. We have over a dozen there. It's a great way to do it. You get great content. And, of course, you give, uh, you give some money to this show. I mean, by default. You keep the show free of charge. And as always, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to it. If you've got show ideas, send them my way. I often get you know, links to things people want, to talk to, want me to talk about. And this particular show is that. So a lot of times the Think Locally, Act Locally message is related to politics. And I'll get into that this week in the last, last article of the week. Uh, this one, though, is a piece that's going to be published or has been published in The Atlantic. And now The Atlantic is horrible. The Atlantic is a joke of a magazine. It's never been, uh, it's never been known for its historical accuracy. And I've talked about, look... The piece that I wrote years ago, Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians, is based in large part on uh, a piece in The Atlantic, The Myth of the Conley General Lee. So The Atlantic, since 2015 in particular, has been doing constant hit pieces on the Confederacy, the Lost Cause, Confederate monuments, all this stuff. And this piece is no different. It's a new piece. uh, And let me see, the title of the piece is, let me get back up to it, is why Confederate lies live on. For some Americans, history isn't the story of what actually happened. It's the story of what they want to believe. Now, I want to keep that title in context here. Because what we've got in America, what we've got in this particular battle, are two myths. One is the righteous cause myth. The other is the so-called lost cause myth. Now, I'm not going to say that in all of that, There isn't a situation where you have people that say things on the lost cause side that aren't true. They do it all the time. And I've been very careful to say we need to be be careful about how we say things because uh, if you believe that there is something worthwhile to Confederate veterans, that there was something worthwhile to secession, now we can talk about whether secession should have happened then, should have not happened then. Those are all debatable things. Whether that men that fought for the Confederacy, men that led the Confederacy, while some of these men are actual American heroes, which I've said they are, 
you have to be careful about not saying things that aren't true, right? If you say something like that uh, slavery wasn't part of the, of the issues that led to secession, well, then you're not saying things that are true. But why slavery? I did a whole podcast. You just want to go back and look at my look at my uh, episode list. Go back and search for why slavery. It's one of the one of the earliest episodes I did. Why slavery? Why is slavery important? Was it because there was a moral opposition to it in the North and a moral defense of it in the South? Well, certainly you had people that would do those things. There's no doubt about it. There were Northerners that were dedicated abolitionists who said slavery was a moral wrong. Then you had Southerners that would say that slavery is morally correct. You had this. Of course, you also had Northerners saying slavery is morally correct. As Larry Tyes has pointed out, you can't point to pro-slavery as the cause of the war because the North and the South were complicit in this. They believed it across the board. It was the majority of, at one time, believed that was the case. And then as that started to wane, you had different sects, S-E-C-T-S, grow out of that and do different things. So you can't say that slavery wasn't involved in this. Of course it was. And when you look at uh, the lower South, the deep South, they were concerned about a threat to the institution from uh, from a sectional government. There's no doubt about it. But even when you read Stevens's defense of it, and this is often cited, and this piece by Clint Smith does it, he says, look, just look at at what Alexander H. Stevens said. He said that uh, slavery was the immediate cause. But by saying there's immediate, that means there's also long-standing problems. It was the immediate break that led to the break, secession, at that particular point. But why slavery? It was the block of the extension of slavery that was the real problem. And Southerners said it was a problem because the North was violating the Constitution. So there you get into the legal part of this. It wasn't moral. We we use the term slavery because it is a, a... Tough word, right? We, you say slaves. I mean, that invokes, oh, that's, that's brutal. That's power. That's a hard thing to talk about. And so, uh, and then you put in all the other political context that goes to that, the use of race and other things. I mean, this makes it a very difficult issue, right? And, and it is for anybody that talks about it. It's difficult. It's hard. We know there are injustices in slavery. We know that people were abused. We know these things happen. We know these things have happened in slavery throughout the history of man. It's not unique to America. In fact, as people have done comparative studies, they found that America was a little more mild in this than other parts of the Western Hemisphere, particularly by the middle of the 19th century, as one of the people I'm going to talk about in this particular podcast points out. But regardless, anytime you have that kind of power, that's the real problem with the institution itself. It's the power and what that means. The unbridled power is going to lead to abuse, which is why it's a bad institution. It's, it's terrible in that way, right? So it's good that it's gone. You want to get rid of it. You don't want anything that's going to deny people their humanity. And I mentioned in the last podcast that there are two sides of the same coin to this. Anytime you have an institution that because of heredity, right, you're born into it, whether it's monarchy or whether it's servitude, that's two sides of the same coin. It's bad. You don't want any type of heredity, hereditary anything, right? So if you're born into slavery, you're not maximizing the resources of people. 
Same thing if you're born into a monarchy and you're a dunderhead. If you're Charles the Hext, well, why should that idiot be a king? He shouldn't. That's the problem of all of this. So anytime you have, heredi you have heredity involved in anything, it creates a dangerous situation because for society overall, you elevate people that shouldn't be elevated and you suppress people that shouldn't be suppressed. But of course, this is, well, my, my people are born of this. So the American principle, I mean, if you want to get into this, the American idea of a natural aristocracy cannot be in any way pro-slavery. There has to be something else to it. And you might say, well, then you're saying that the founders, well, I'm saying that the founders weren't necessarily anti-slavery. Uh, some of them were, and some of them had problems with it. But, I mean, they didn't do anything to necessarily get rid of it because they didn't know what to do because then they believed that even in that situation that blacks were not equal with whites. So, I mean, you run into all these issues, right? And, and so this is where everything gets so complex, and it's hard. It's hard. But the, when I point, when I say for Americans, history isn't the story of what actually happens, the story of what they want to believe. For some Americans, well, I would say for Clint Smith as well. I would say Clint Smith is falling into this situation. This is the trap of all of this. Because what Clint Smith does in this piece is say, these people believe in lies, but I believe in the truth. Whereas the people that he's talking to would say that Clint Smith believes in lies, and they believe in the truth. And there's a lady that he interviews that says, look, if you gave me five books by five different historians, you're going to have five different conclusions. She's correct, because what Clint Smith cites is refuted by other historians. Because that's the nature of history. I can look at a document one way and say it means this. You can look at a document another way and say it means that. That is what history is. It's not, it's not objective. It's subjective. This is you know, the Novik book, that noble, that noble dream. There's no objectivity in history. It doesn't happen. And so you're going to let your own worldview cloud your judgment at times. It's very hard to be objective. Every historian is biased. I'm biased. So is Clint Smith. I mean, he's writing as a historian in some ways here. He's writing a journalistic piece, but it's, it's full of history. He's relying on sources that I say are wrong. But every historian is biased because they have what they want to see, and sometimes they lie to fit what they want, which is what I would say the neoconservatives do with the founding. Or some of the people on the left, like Clint Smith. And I'm gonna get it. I'm not gonna talk about the stuff at the beginning, which is essentially a hit on the lost cause. These people are just telling lies. They don't they don't say these things. This is just all lies. And the things that he cites, um, some of them are just ridiculous. He cites the SPLC. I mean, look, a, a, a political organization masquerading as a non-political organization is not a valid source. Uh, he talks about um, the myth of the lost cause. He cites the Atlantic. He cites his own magazine. And, of course, you've got Tanishi Coates, who was, whose articles on this are ridiculous. The read five books to make you look less stupid on the Civil War. And it's an Atlantic piece. I mean, so he's citing the Atlantic, the myth of the kindly, gen kindly General Lee, all of this stuff. He's citing his own magazine, which is easily called into question for being correct about just about anything. But I want to get to the last part of this. Uh, he also cites a, um, 
a book, Joseph Glatter, Glatter, who wrote a book about uh, the number of men who served in the Army in Northern Virginia who owned slaves or at least attached to slavery. Uh, But he doesn't cite Gary Gallagher or James McPherson who said, well, slavery for most of these men wasn't the reason they were fighting the war at all. But see, what's happened is over time, he's citing these others, well, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was certainly the reason. James Oliver Horton uh, uh, writing a book about how the pro-slavery things just overwhelmed Southerners, and this is what they were afraid of. Well, you could say the same thing about Northerners as well, who didn't want blacks in the Western Territory. I mean, this is the problem. You're creating a fictional dichotomy that doesn't exist, a righteous North and a, and a racist South, a non-racist North and a racist South. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. An a anti-slavery republic against a pro-slavery republic. Well, the North still had slave states in it in 1865. Right, So that was a slaveholding federal republic. I mean, this is the problem. Now, I want to get to the last part of this particular essay, though. And I say that he's, he's some Americans still believe in lies. I would say that Clint, what's his name? Clint Smith does believe in lies as well. And this is the problem. He believes in a fabricated, sensationalized story to and, and he, the way he the way I know this is because of the way he actually writes this fabricated story of the South. And this fabricated story is created by the media. And it's created by myths, by stories. But I'm gonna go and I'm gonna cite a historian, because Clint Smith likes to do that. Clint Smith likes to cite this historian, that historian. Now, I could cite historians who do, but I'm gonna cite a historian not just an interpreter, who actually wrote about the subject in a book that is, let's see, almost 900 pages long. A man who was considered the, the historian of slavery in America for much of his career. And this is a man who, when he wrote this particular book I'm going to cite, was not a conservative at all. He had no, I mean, look, this man hated the institution of slavery. If you want to say it's conservatives or pro-slavery, which I don't think they are, but if you're saying that, well, then, uh, then, then this guy was certainly not interested in it, and he made a career of saying, I'm not, I'm not that at all. So I want to read this part of it. He says, like Blandford Cemetery, the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana has a church. It is large and white and flaked with a thin coat of dirt. The door whistles as it opens, and the wooden floor moans under your feet as you step inside. There are no stained-glass windows here. Instead, scattered throughout the church's interior, standing next to the pews, sitting on the floor, holding and hiding in the corners, are statues. There are more than two dozen of them, lifelike sculptures of children with eyes small, empty planets. The boys wear shorts or overalls, the girls simple dresses. When I saw them, I was startled because at first glance I thought they were real. Each one was so alive despite its innateness, intricately detailed from the contours to the lips to the bridge of the nose. They're like looking, they're looking like the listening or waiting. They are the children of Whitney, designed for the plantation by the artist Woodrow Nash. Now, he goes into what this, what this means. He says, like Blanford, the Whitney also has a cemetery of a kind, 
A small courtyard called the Field of Angels memorializes the 2,200 enslaved children who died in St. John the Baptist Parish from 1823 to 1863. Their names are carved into granite slabs and encircle the space. My tour guide, Yvonne, the site's director of operations, explained that most had died of malnutrition and disease. Malnutrition and disease. Yvonne, who was black, added that there were stories of some enslaved mothers killing their own babies rather than sentencing them to a life of slavery. Now, that paragraph is interesting to me. I looked at that and I said, ah, what Clint Smith is trying to do is say that these children died unusually in high numbers because of genocide, essentially, that slavery produced genocide and that you had infanticide. And it's all caused by slavery. If you read this, this paragraph without any context of the period of time, that's the, that's the impression you would get. Well, it's all because of, but he has no sources here, no historians, just an interpreter. Just an interpreter. He doesn't try to go out and find some other book to back this up. Or, well, wait a second here. This historian said this. Or this historian said that. He doesn't do that. You see, he does that with everything that the white Southerners said in the first part of this piece. Because this piece is wrong. This is wrong. Look at this article. Look at this article. But you go to this part, there's no links. There's no books. There's no nothing. It's just that these people who are interpreters are speaking the truth. These people who are these pro-Confederate people, are just telling lies. You think about what he's done, and you see the stupidity of it all. Where are the, where are the sources to back up what he's saying? If, when somebody makes a statement like that, you would think, well, gosh, is that actually true? Did people actually do that? You just take it as word that this happened. Just like he would say, well, these white Southerners took it as word that this uh, this black Southerner served as an officer in the Confederate mail, but I'm going to say that's all fake. But why doesn't he try to do that with this? He just takes it as word that this happened. And it's just kind of off offhand. Well, I mean, this happened. Well, so let's go to a source about this. Did, 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 and let me, let me go down. So let me, let me continue. Then I'll go into a source. At the center of the courtyard is a statue of an angel down on one knee. Her chest is bare and a pair of wings juts from her back. Her hair is pulled into a thick rows of braids and her head is bent, eyes cast downward, and the limp body of a small child in her hands. My own son was almost two at the time and his baby sister was a couple of weeks from making her way into the world. This child cradled in the angel's hands evoked to me a surge of grief I had not expected. I felt the blood leave my fingers. I had to push out of my head the image of my own child in those hands. I had to remind myself to breathe. This is a guy that when a firearm went off, he jumped. Oh, my God. Uh, a historic, you know, black powder firearm that he said made him jump because all these people were looking at him suspiciously, and he thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to they're gonna get at me here. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He, he cites all the same old stupid platitudes. I don't want to get into that because I've covered all that stuff before. And then continues. There are so many misconceptions about slavery, Yvonne said. People don't really consider the children who are brought over and the children who are born into the system. And the way to get people to let their guard down when they come here is being confronted with the reality of slavery. And the reality of slavery is child enslavement. So I want to focus on that part of it. Again, these paragraphs combined would make you feel like, oh my gosh, if you're reading, oh my gosh, look at this. This is, what are we doing? But there's nothing to verify this, nothing to back this up. No historians that would say, well, this historian verified this by saying this, or this historian said this. Now, for the first time ever on this podcast you're watching, I'm going to put on glasses because uh, as I've gotten older, my eyesight has 
deteriorate a little bit. And this book has small text, so I have to wear these glasses so I can read this while I'm still talking about this. But I'm going to say that now. This is from Eugene Genovese, Roll, Jordan, Roll, The World the Slaveholders Made, published in 1972 for a long time, even when I was in graduate school, considered to be the definitive text on the issue of slave culture, slave labor. What was, what was slavery actually like? The other one that was also in this role or this regard was Time on the Cross by Fogel and Engerman, two books that were the two books you read on slave culture and slave society and work and other things. How did slaves work? How did they live? What was their culture like? And Genovese was a card-carrying Marxist at this point in his life. He was not someone who would have supported in any way a pro-slavery argument. But what does he say about it? And there's a lot here. In 1857, the Supreme Court of Georgia upheld the conviction of a planter for manslaughter and the whipping of a 13-year-old girl. The Supreme Court agreed with the lower court's opinion that the girl of that age ought not to have been hit with anything more than a switch and indignantly suggested that the only error in the case lay in the failure to convict for murder. This is Georgia in 1857. So, yes, a young 13-year-old girl was killed by whipping. Horrible. Horrible. But the interesting part to me is that a court, which is supposed to be there to to uphold the inhumanity of slaves, was saying, this should have been murder. The courts and public opinion consider slaves children until about 12 and tender adolescents until their late teens. But what you're getting out of this piece is that, no, 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 these people were just considered to be chattel, that they were just, they died because they were starved to death. The system, as Genovese said, that wasn't the case. This is Eugene Genovese. This isn't Brian McClanahan. This is Eugene Genovese. I'm just reading what Eugene Genovese wrote. Boys of 12 might already be plowing, but there remained boys at the beginning of a slow breaking-in process. On the recommendation of the Caroline County Court, Governor James Monroe, Virginia, pardons Scipio for his part in Gabriel's Rebellion because he was a mere lad, no older than 18 or 19. Not until the age of 10, usually 12, did Humane masters consider selling a child away from the mother, although a great many less humane masters sold children at any age. So yes, these things happened, as Genovese points out. But we have to be careful about this. And I say this in this way. If we're going to have an honest conversation about these things, let's be honest about everything. Let's really have a come-together moment and say, yeah, there were horrible things, but let's not create myths that weren't there. Let's not sensationalize and make it out like with no documentation, no documentation. These things happen, it was just commonplace. And I'll get into the, to the death part here in a minute. From a strictly economic point of view, slaveholders thought that children under 10 did not pay their way and that they did not earn a profit for the masters until their late teens. Plantation records and slave narratives have qualified support to James Henry Hammond's boast that no slave did any work before the age of 10 that most did not work until the age of 12, and that they did light field work for the first few years thereafter. Hammond came as close to the truth as a propagandist could be expected to, for a majority of the slaves went to the fields at 12. A noticeable minority began field work before 12, mostly at 10 and sometimes even earlier, but another minority did not begin until 13, 14, or 15. So here's Eugene Genovese saying, this guy, this James Henry Hammond guy, who was, I mean, a horrible character, number one, and uh, his moral life was, was terrible. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, but he was saying, look, I mean, they didn't go to work until 12. 
Genovese is saying this is pretty true. But then he also says this. This is he, he qualifies it. Before the age of uh, about eight, most children did little or no work apart from looking after or nursing these younger those younger than themselves. Although in every part of the South, some masters worked little ones unmercifully from the time they could toddle. Between eight and twelve, the children graduated to such responsibilities as cleaning up the yards, digging up potatoes, many of which they appropriated for their own illicit roasting parties, sell, shelling peas to the kitchen, or more laboriously toting water to the field hands. Their hardest work came during the cotton-picking season, when they were sometimes called upon to help. In the fields, with little expected of them, and with normal childish pride in doing the work of adults, they often enjoyed themselves. Mrs. Schoolcraft wrote truthfully about the children who had such tasks as chasing birds out of the fields. The little rascals are, however, such cute-eyed servants that they make traps and pick blackberries and roast potatoes and ground nuts in the rice and corn patches, leaving the birds full swing. Despite a quote of abuse and danger, the slave children had a childhood, however much misery awaited them. Well, what you this is what Genovese is saying. What you read in this piece of that's not that's not true. These people were, I mean, kept in chains and just starved to death. So which one was it? Genovese footnoted, by the way, noting, citing all kinds of evidence, whereas this piece doesn't. So which one is true? He's not saying it's easy. He's not saying it's great. He's saying it's horrible. But there was something else to this. The children's release from field labor gave them time to help their parents in ways other than looking after the babies. The work in the garden plots, for example, reduced the burden on their overworked parents. The older boys learned to trap squirrels and other small animals to augment the ver- and vary the family's diet. Slave parents did not ruthlessly exploit their children in these ways. The children willingly contributed to the household. To appreciate the significance of these protected years, consider that the, consider the lot of peasants and workers of other mid-19th century societies. So now he's going to give a comparative analysis. This is something that, again, this piece in the Atlantic lacks. I was glad, wrote William Howard Russell, the English correspondent from Louisiana, to see the boys and girls of 9, 10, and 11 years of age were at this season, at all events, exempted from the cruel fate which befalls poor children of their age in the mining and manufacturing districts of England. In the British Isles in 1835, about 13% of the more than 220,000 workers in the cotton industry were 12 years of age or less. So here's a comparative. So 13% of 220,000 workers, so that's roughly over 22,000 children, 12 or less, employed in the textile industry. Their working conditions exposed in parliamentary investigations, not to mention the searing indictments in, in Engels, conditions of the working class in England, and Marx's capital, produced a measure of drunkenness, debauchery, and moral degradation among the children that no amount of bourgeoisie's apologetics on the glories of their industrial revolution will ever erase. So these children were living horrible lives. He's citing socialist Marxist sources here, but these children were living horrible lives. By 1853, children of eight were still lawfully employed in English and French industry, and children of nine to 11 in much of Germany. Not until 1853 did Prussia take the lead by abolishing child labor under the age of 12 and by restricting the length of the working day to six hours for children under 16. A doctor described the children who worked in the Manchester cotton mills as almost universally ill-looking, small, sickly, barefoot, and ill-clad. Many appeared to be no older than seven. This is in Europe. But what Genovese is saying here, that that's not what happened in the South. 
They had not started out well. As tots, many had to be shifted into incompetent hands while their young mothers worked all day. Many had been fed laudanum and other opiates to keep them quiet and numb their hunger. At work in pits and factories at seven years of age, they worked 12, 16, 18 hours. Did they fall asleep? Not likely. The whip kept them awake. Now he's talking about English laborers in factories, not slaves. But you're drawn to the fact that is any of this different? The rest of the story, the desperation of their exhausted mothers and fathers, the inattention of their, to their most elementary needs, the other brutalization of their formative years, we need only note in passing. The exploitation of little children on this scale and with this intensity, writes E.P. Thompson, with all the restraint he can muster, was one of the most shameful events in our history. So Genovese is saying you had these children running around joyfully, willingly doing these tasks on the plantation, whereas here in industrial Britain, these kids were being whipped at seven, fed laudanum, which is opium, so they didn't cry. Debauchery, drunkenness, horrible conditions. Most abolitionists pretended not to know the relative conditions of English working class and southern slave children, or worse, actually did not know. But the slaveholders knew precisely and commended themselves on their own humanity, which had something to be said for, especially since the slaveholders of the British Caribbean used their slaves in a manner more reminiscent of the factory owners of Manchester than the planters of Mississippi. So he's saying there's a difference. Again, I'm reading Eugene Genovese. He's not excusing or saying these things are good, but he's saying, let's look at all this in comparative history, which the Atlantic peace leaves out. That's the context that matters. The southern slave owners knew, too, that their slave children fared, fared closer to the style of their own pampered children than that of the children of non-slave owners, who had to help their parents by doing rough work at early ages. The better impulses of the master class, combined with a good deal of solid economic rationality to bring the slave children to maturity slowly and in a manner designed to guarantee their eventual maximum productivity. Southern ideologues extolled slavery precisely for this blending of self-interest and humane consideration. George Fitzhugh, among many others, regarded such self-interest as the indispensable foundation of all viable humanitarianism. So he's saying, look, poor whites in the South, they worked uh, younger. They were, this was hard. But slave, slaves were brought in easier. This is Interesting because, I mean, Hammond was saying, look, this is, this is the welfare state. I mean, they created a welfare system for slaves, for mothers, and I'm going to get into that. The slaveholders in this case and their more general treatment of slaves looked at the condition of European working class, at the abolition's indifference and even hypocrisy concerning that condition, and at the condition of their own slaves and drew their own conclusion. They saw themselves as misunderstood, misrepresented, wronged. So in other words, reading this Atlantic piece, Genovese is saying, well, this is what Southerners would look at. Well, this isn't true. Those leisurely and playful black children were inadvertently strengthening the intransigence of their master's commitment to slavery. More important for immediate purposes, the prolonged childhood of the slaves provided a foundation of physical health for their potential development as independent spirited adults, even if many broke along the way. Once they went to the fields, they experienced the full misery of their condition, and the abrupt shift must have been traumatic, despite the painstaking efforts of so many masters to break them in to hard labor slowly over a period of years. Not that the slaves suffered initially from being sent to the fields. Many youngsters could hardly wait, for the work assignment itself marked their arrival as young men. Often they were, on the word of an ex-slave, crazy to get behind a plow and show their stuff. Not so with these kids. I mean, saying, so this is a different type of environment, completely different. 
than what you're getting out of the interpretation that all these pe people dying and this and that. The inhumanity of all their children. Which Anabasi is saying the record shows that children were actually brought up in a different way in this type of environment. The lives of children change dramatically at about the age of 12. The eagerness of many to get behind the plow carried with it other recognitions of manhood. Uh, so I'm not going to get into this part. For some, the shocking awareness of slave conditions came during childhood, and for others later when they went to the fields and felt the whip. For most, their early informative years had offered a semblance of childhood, at least relative to the children of other laboring classes. They had, they had time to grow physically and to parry the most brutal features of their bondage through games. Within limits, they had been able to feel and enjoy life. Within these limits, they absorbed the rules and values of the dominant culture, but their early freedom from mind and body-breaking toil contributed to the strength of the many adult slaves who emerged as high-spirited men and women. This is Eugene Genovese, the Marxist, talking about slavery. Not me. This is what he's writing in Roll, Jordan, Roll. I'm just citing a book. Why and a, a popular, the, the most popular, you can still see this book on Amazon. It still ranks very high in slave studies. The children devise games to fill their spare time. Well, if they were just all starving to death, how could they even do this? Now, I want to get into this idea of uh, infanticide. Because again, this is what is brought up in this particular piece. It was often said that uh, the slave mothers were indifferent to their children, and, and Genovese addresses that here. He said, uh, White Southerners who usually knew better sometimes pretended that black mothers cared little about children. The whites might have been referring to that stoicism toward the death of an infant which appears in all societies with high infant mortality, especially among the poor. Yet even upper-class Southern whites suffered too from the death of their own infants, not to understand the necessity of a certain amount of fatalism and self-control. They did not confuse their own self-discipline with lack of grief. The white women and eventually the men frequently commented on the grief felt by particular slave parents when they lost a child. The sadistic mistress who whipped a slave girl to death fully appreciated the maternal affection of her slaves. She sent for the girl's mother to watch her die. I mean, horrible, right? That's horrible. There's no, I mean, that, that's a horrible thing to say and a horrible thing to, to witness. The calmness, and this is why I said power, was the ultimate failing of any of this in any way. If you just put it down to that, not alone, not, not disregarding the humanity of it all, but it's the power. The calmness of many slave mothers and fathers in the face of the death of their infants and young children recalls that of many other peoples who simply had to live with the probability of losing some of their children. Keith Thomas writes, In Tudor and Stuart England, men were fully accustomed to disease and a low expectation of life. Parents were slower to recognize the individuality of their children, for they well knew that they might lose them in their infancy. In France, one commenter cited, Nobody thought, as we ordinarily think today, that every child already contained a man's personality. Too many of them died. Mrs. Kimball, commenting on the apparent indifference of parents to the death of a boy, recounted a telling incident. The mother merely repeated over and over again, I've lost a many. They all go so. And the father, without a word or comment, went out to, in, to his enforced labor. This self-protective hardening of parents' attitudes toward their children, reinforced under slavery by fear of sale, did not appear in the quarters any more noticeably than elsewhere under conditions of high infant mortality. It may even have appeared less often. Most black women welcomed their babies as a joy, loved them, embraced themselves for the inevitable losses and heartaches. So this idea that 2,200 enslaved children, I mean, it's malnutrition, but this happened all over the place. 
How do we know it was all because of malnutrition? Uh, but disease was a problem. I mean, this happened all over the place. Some slave women took little interest in their children, either because they succumbed to the terrific pressure of overwork, insufficient time for childcare, and general demoralization, or because they did not want to raise them as slaves. But much of what has been called indifference was no more than the effects of exhaustion of women who loved their children but could not always find patience for. Women who had been forced into cohabitation might especially have resented the children of these unions, yet there is no evidence that they even that even they usually did so. Women who do not want children knew how to abort or to arrange to have a child die soon after birth. With childbirth deaths so common from natural causes, the deed could not easily be detected, but birth and reproduction rates remained high. Slave abortions, much less infanticide, did not become a major problem for the slaveholders or an ordinary form of resistance for the slaves. Infanticide occurred, but so far as the detected cases reveal anything, only in some special circumstances. So in some ways... There's stories of some enslaved mothers. But are there, is this widespread? You would get the impression this is widespread. Of those 2,200, how many? Was it one? Was it two? And what's the difference? My, my thing about this, because that's bringing this up, this is the left that promotes uh, ending birth on demand. On demand. So what's the difference here? Why are they so hard on it here, but yet... Not there. I mean, this is the question you have to ask. It's all brutal. It's all inhumane. Particularly humane or close, closely calculating masters release their slave women from field work for a full month before and after childbirth. But many felt short on this model. Normally, the women would have their tasks lightened or cut in half during the last month of pregnancy and then would not be expected back at work until a month after delivery. Plantation midwives usually attended the deliveries, although mistresses sometimes helped. Slaveholders turned to physicians rarely, but the substantial fees recorded in physicians' account books suggest that they regularly attended the difficult cases. The women often complained bitterly that they needed more time before and after delivery, but they may have been more concerned about the care of their infants than more about their own health. The slaveholders thought a month's rest after delivery ample and pointed out accurately that the peasant and working-class women of Europe had no such good fortune. So again, I could go on about this stuff, about these different things. You have to read Roll, Jordan, Roll. It's not an apology for slavery at all, and Genovese makes that clear. This is not. And if you read this book, you're not going to come away thinking that slavery is a great institution. You can't. But what he's doing comparatively is saying, let's look at working class people here and here and see what it's like. And what are the differences? And how did this work? And if we do that, if you just read this piece by Clint Smith, you don't get that impression. That's why I wanted to focus on that one part of it. Because you get the impression that, I mean, he certainly cites things here, but he doesn't hear. So why not? One's a myth. One's telling lies, or at least half-truths. One is not. In his, I mean, and so, or one is and one isn't, or... In this case, maybe this one is a lie, and this one's a lie, too. We have to come to this recognition that the left, in promoting this kind of stuff, is also telling myths and lies, if the other side is, too. That's the real problem. And so, that's why I wanted to focus on this, and why this is important. Context matters. Comparative history matters. And if we're going to have real, honest, mature, adult discussions about these things, well, then we need to do that and not emotional discussions about these things. All right. Roll, Jordan, roll. 
The World the Slaves Made, Eugene Genovese, 1972. Genovese was still a Marxist. Genovese was still dabbling in the world of that, uh, that ideology. It's not an apology for slavery at all. In fact, it's very hard on the institution, and rightfully so. But he also points out in comparative analysis that there are some things going on here that make this a lot more complex than what you get in the Atlantic. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.